0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful
0: reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Arata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big
1: questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as...
0: Is the Bumbling Conjurer okay? Ooh.
1: You really think I wouldn't cheat just because I was already winning? Dread Emperor Terribilis the Second.
0: This is one of those chapters that is a fight. Last time we saw Catherine and her gang somewhat down and out, which means this time everything's going to get worse. And then we're going to have calamitous intervention. Some people will get really hurt. Hakram will enter a fun new weight loss program. And boom.
1: And boom. Uh, yeah, we get a couple of very cool, very big moments in this, some character defining moments. I mean, the Bumbling Conjurer's character in this story is forever changed here. Um but we also get something that's very, very interesting right to start. The Wandering Bard, who we know is uh, fairly important, narratively speaking, starts to taunt Catherine. But Catherine interrupts her. No big deal. That Catherine's rude sometimes. However, the way she interrupts her is by speaking. She says, shut up and the bard's mouth snaps shut and we go on to hear the heroine tried to open her mouth struggling in vain against the compulsion
0: pardon me L- whose mouth did you say snapped shut
1: the wandering bard's mouth snaps shut now speaking against other named uh, you know there's we've seen it done before we'll see it done again by very powerful people who have a level of command. Sure, especially where it makes sense to be moving in the direction of victory and whatever confrontation is going on, fine. Catherine becomes warden. That's a whole thing about her. But the bard, when she is merely the squire without all of her aspects and is at the very beginning of her story, she speaks to the bard successfully. Uh, first time around, this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, cool, speaking's neat. Second time around, this is flabbergasting.
0: My flabber is as gasted as can be. Though, does the bard enjoy any immunities other than horrible immortality and power? No, not
1: necessarily, but it's
0: speaking to me feels like one of
1: those things that is falling on the narrative, the the story pulling the person who speaks into a position of some level of dominance here and also it's weird that creation is allowing its or that the gods above are allowing its mouthpiece narrative mouthpiece narrative guide to be silenced by the squire i don't know this there are times where you know uh, the gods put their fingers on the scale to allow something to. This seems like that should be one of those times where the gods above get some kind of advantage out of the bard being silenced. I don't know. It, this, it's glossed over because we don't know who the bard is, and it would be weird to go into detail in this part of the story. But it seems like this is this should mean something. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm just expecting more from. Uh, This, despite Kat not knowing who this is. And for all we know, maybe the Bard is faking it. Who knows? Like, there's a lot of things that could be going on here. But it feels wrong.
0: May I suggest that you are looking at this from a series perspective, but we need to look at the current story. And despite the Bard's prominence in the whole of creation, the story right now is very much and increasingly the story of Catherine and the Lone Swordsman. Diegetically, metaphysically, what matters in this time and place is her struggle against Billiam. Fair.
1: And the Bard is interrupting that.
0: And I think we've learned, as good students of Black, that it doesn't matter who you are and what you're doing, if you stumble into the wrong story, if you don't keep a hold on the story, the story may go on without you. And there are stories that go on without you, even if you're the Bard?
1: I mean, that's interesting. That's very potentially what's going on here. And I mean, there is some evidence to back that up in the following paragraph because the Hunter, who up till now has been holding his own fairly well against Cat and Hawkram, charges towards Cat and Cat now in the fullness of struggle, uh, steps around his attack and with one slice opens him up from belly to throat, uh struggle is incredibly powerful and Hunter was in the way of what the story needed to be in this moment and is just in one stroke out of the fight.
0: That does not sound very good. I don't envy him.
1: Yeah, cuts that go the entire length of your torso probably aren't good. And not just cuts. He's opened up from belly to torso or belly to throat. Yikes. Also missing an a hand, so he's he's got some holes.
0: But He's not the only one in this fight. There's still more to do. Yeah, there's, uh, uh
1: the mages have shown up and are starting to, uh, are, are applying some pressure, and rather than being in the fullness of an initial assault, a wave to break ranks or to kill, um, they've adapted, uh, a sort of staggered fire approach, uh, the cat mentions here. There's a rate of fire, um, that's meant to just deal with dug-in targets, where the, they're kind of, you know, like a, uh, what's the term I'm looking for here? Like a rank fire situation, you know, early rifle, where you've got just a constant stream of fireballs being thrown out. It's neat that they've got these things. Not surprising at all that they've got these doctrines for the rate of fire from your mages to deal with different types of targets. Not surprising at all that it's, you know, effective, but, you know, a nice little detail. I like it.
0: And we've talked about how Yeah, the Legions are a great, powerful machine, but at the end of the day, this is a story of Named, and they don't measure up, even in their number and skill, to the influence Named can have on the battlefield. And that's true, but with the conjurer facing this kind of fire, Catherine makes the astute and ultimately wrong observation that no role could stave off death indefinitely. As long as we're willing to allow those roles to die in between staving off death. I can think of at least two. One of whom is very near and dear to us right now in the story and near, like there. I just can't hear her right now, who managed to fight off death. But theory stands if exceptions exist.
1: Right. Names are very powerful, but they can be the the people bearing them can be defeated.
0: And can be overwhelmed, even when they're better than literally every Legion mage. <laughs> right.
1: Uh but that does bring us to an interesting point where uh, Kat's sort of eyeing up the battlefield here. And then she gives us uh, the line that, her, that there's the uh, warriors of Callow and the soldiers of the legions, uh, you know, going into the difference between individual versus formation fighting. But then she waves all that away and says, didn't matter. Ultimately, all the other fights were sideshows. Black had always stressed that the place of a named on the battlefield was to find the fulcrum, the tick-bing point, and then to yank that lever as hard as you could. Now, there's probably a lot to be said on the topic I'm about to bring up here, but I'm going to anyway. Why are there armies on Calernia? Why, when an individual name can hold the line a a single individual can shift the tide of battle just by having the right story there why have the armies in the first place then what are they contributing in a fight i'm not saying don't have guards don't have uh you know occupying forces whatever that kind of thing where you keep the peace sure governments are always going to have that but armies feel if not fully obsolete, then a smidge superfluous with named, since they're they're the ones who control the narrative. They're the ones who shift the direction things are going. I don't know. The, is that pushing this too far? Is that just that's how the setting developed? I, I, it's interesting to me that this this comment and the thoughts that spool off of it.
0: Let us make the difficult to support assumption that names are powerful enough and placed enough to invalidate the actions of armies entirely. Armies are ultimately only avatars of the will of the named, etc., etc. Even should we make that assumption, they are necessitated because if you are a good king of Kalo, how are you supposed to crusade against the tower? If you are the dread emperor, what are you supposed to lead in your... Where are you supposed to lead as you levitate your flying fortress out over the fertile fields of your enemies, raining death and horror? Even if names invalidate armies, armies depend on, rather, named depend on armies, or rise from the armies sometimes, be it a knightly named or the... Is he Grizzled? Who? Somebody on Improsser. Somebody's just one of the yeah, irregulars.
1: the... the... Grizzled Fantassin, is that?
0: That sounds right to me. Something like that, yeah. I, I know, I know
1: what you mean. I that does kind of. I don't know. There's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario here. If the named were developing the idea of roles, if these ruts were being worn in creation prior to states being big enough to field armies, then armies may not have developed, which means names had to have come somewhat later i guess you're talking about these ruler names needing people under them especially militaries under them sure but if there hadn't been armies in the first place then those names would not have developed so i I don't know maybe ruler names like would have been some of the early ones because they rely on repeated stories and you need a position of permanence for that rut to develop in the first place maybe i don't know kind of grasping at straws here but it it just it there's a level here that I I, that I don't know how far we can push this thought that all other fights were sideshows when named or on the field.
0: I don't think Catherine is being fully generous in the statement, and I don't believe armies are invalidated. I
1: think you're probably right. I just think that that statement says a lot of things about Catherine, but also about the setting, since it does come from Black, and he's not a perfectly reliable narrator, but pretty good, actually. And I don't know, there's... a uh, it's a weird thought, and uh, again, I think there could be a lot more said on the topic. But I think it'll come up more as Kat is more involved in armies dealing with things that armies shouldn't be dealing with—demons and such.
0: Oh, they're not dealing with it. Who does? <laughs> uh,
1: but these these fights between soldiers and warriors are sideshows in this moment, especially because it is such a small skirmish. Taking uh, second stage two, the main fight, which is William and Kat.
0: And they do trash talk each other a fair bit. Uh, Catherine tells him, I think this one will go a little differently. I'm not half dead this time. Which which is true. Don't get me wrong. But we know we've initiated the pattern of three. Which is to say, yes, this one will go differently. And both differently are worse for you. Somehow.
1: W- worse than being half dead, yep. But Cat throws that line out, uh, I'm not half dead this time. And William responds with, again, this guy's the worst. But he responds with maybe the cleverest thing he has said up to this point in the story. He smiles and gives a, Night's still young. That's a great retort to I'm not half dead. Where did this come from? William's not witty and bantery. Th- th- really threw me off, <laughs> but you know. Nice job fitting in with the other named briefly. What's Catherine doing here? In this fight?
0: In this whole town.
1: Oh, uh, getting ready for war and also helping settle the city down because there are heroes here.
0: Okay. So Catherine analyzes a speech from her various positions that she occupies. One of them being the squire in charge of a city, which he had been putting to the torch. And... I I can see how this claim can be made. The city is under martial law. She is one of the two generals in the city. She holds the name, which is both legal and effective power. And effective power is also legal power. Mm-hmm. So there is there is room to call herself the squire in charge of a city. But despite that, in a lot of in a whole lot of ways, isn't it really Afalabi who's in charge of the city? Even if he's outranked by a visiting person, he's the one seated in the palace from which martial law extends, you know? He is, but Kat
1: did uh, pretty well demonstrate that she's usurped that control when she said, oh, I couldn't trust any of your soldiers, so I went ahead and set up an ambush sort of trap situation without even telling you. I think that made it clear who actually is in charge as long as Kat's in town. And I think Afolabi recognized that. He kind of, like, he wasn't happy with it, but he didn't try to argue against it.
0: Yeah. But Catherine just, its her shorthands are very convenient.
1: Yeah, Yeah. for sure.
0: that all acknowledged. You know what else is convenient? Hmm. Her name is growing. And remember last time she fought William, she was not even in possession of struggle. But now, now of her own will, and not as just a, you know, instinctual, magical, bestial reaction. She tells us, I raised my now free hand, and strands of shadow wove themselves around it, forming a wicked-looking spear. I tossed it at William with a grunt, aiming for his abdomen, but the green-eyed hero raised an insultingly skeptical eyebrow, blah, blah, blah. Uh This is new. Uh, Catherine, what a lovely... Manifestation of Deadly Projectiles. Congratulations, you're
1: growing up. New and kind of unsettling. Uh, It's knocked aside by William's special sword, digs into the pavestones with a howl. And this isn't just artistic license, oh, it's loud. Nope, because it's a howl, and we know that because Catherine follows it up with, I hadn't figured out how to make it stop doing that yet. She's weaving together dark magic, and uh, this shadow magic is... Screaming when she throws it, and she doesn't necessarily know why or how to make it stop. So uh, <laughs> there's some uh, pretty unsettling weapons being used in this this duel here.
0: I don't like it.
1: It's not great. Uh,
0: That's all... wonderfully anime.
1: <laughs> I mean, it is, and the next paragraph begins with another example of that. Uh, named power, sometimes it feels like it's hard to get an exact grasp on what it is and how strong people are just from a how, how far can they jump or how fast are they and i think that's intentional there's some blurriness because that way it allows the narrative to carry the weight rather than actually a strict like comparison of who's stronger but it's very easy to forget that the named are absurdly strong when they need to be hat jumps leaps towards william at just a dead sprint she's barely into her name And still, when she goes from a standstill to a run, the stone under her feet breaks. She cracks the ground as she runs.
0: That's just unnecessary. (laughs) so much. So, Practical Guide to Evil is canonically an anime.
1: Yes. I think it's a manga because it's written.
0: Oh, you're right. I'm sorry I'm not very up to date on. Go ahead, alienate some of our listeners. So Catherine says, William took a single step back and adjusted so he was facing me as I stood back up. He waited with his sword raised, unhurried. I was at one with the time limit. He could afford to let me go on the offensive and wait for me to make a mistake. I grimaced. This is true. She is on a time limit. She is enjoying the short-term boost of struggle. But that's what she knows. And I don't think he does. And the only time limits he's aware of are... He's fighting with a small group of lone heroes, but not lone lone, in a city filled with enemy forces that are surely going to converge or something. Also Warlock. He He's the one with the time limit, from his knowledge. He doesn't have a plan brewing, other than he's got people getting ready in another building we find out are all robbered. Catherine is not looking at the fight from his perspective.
1: I mean... He, she explains why she's on a timeline. That's all fine. I think the thing is, as far as these the duelists here, the, the two combatants are concerned, Warlock is mostly a non-factor in this engagement. And he's the only threat, really, to a band of heroes left in the city. I mean, yeah, more legions might show up. More legionaries might show up. And then the Lone Swordsman swings his perfect cutting tool through... The shields and arms and heads of the legionaries, like he's been doing, and they just die. Uh, outside of the named in the city, none of them, no one's really a threat to this band. Especially since, again, heroes—they're outnumbered by the minions of darkness. They're gonna win, unless Warlock shows up, which they don't think he's going to. Yeah, he—he he can hang out here all day and be outnumbered, and that's fine for him.
0: I hate heroes. Honestly, as would anyone with a heart.
1: Beat. Uh, Cat is in a a fight with William, and he's got a sword that is incredibly lethal. And there have been a couple of moments in this where Cat barely avoids severe injury or death. She barely avoids biting her own tongue off when she's knocked on the noggin. Uh, She barely pulls away in time to avoid having her head cleaved in two by the sword. So we know that the way that the rule of three specifically, or the narrative pull for one side or the other to win works generally, is in these small nudges where it more or less seems like luck. You know, it's not that, I oh the rule of three means I'm going to win this. Therefore, I can do I can just stroll into battle and easily win. And there's not even a real fight. No, it's it's little things that go your way when they otherwise might not have. Uh, this fight isn't supposed to be Cat's final defeat by this emerging pattern. And I'm wondering if these couple of things here are those nudges before we know to look for them. If these are those nudges that are keeping Cat a capable combatant here. Uh, that was a pretty fun alliteration. She narrowly avoids losing her tongue, which would have probably lost her the fight. Biting through your entire tongue, eh, a little debilitating. Uh, she narrowly avoids having her head cut in half. These near misses are, could just be creation eh, slightly nudging things so that this, this confrontation doesn't end in a swift death for Catherine.
0: I had not thought to notice that. That's really cool let's keep an eye out. Yeah. But speaking of tongue, which, as we know, are sharper than the sword, you know who else is sharp? Who's that? Catherine. As she's bantering, she acknowledges to us, I'd been taught to fight by some of the most dangerous people ever to grace praise, and they had kept me sharp over the last year. Yeah, sure. True. Absolutely. More importantly, though, over the last year, kind of a an unclear inexact way of stating it but this is i think our clearest confirmation of a timeline Catherine is roughly a year out from her elevation abduction I I- mean, introduction
1: we kind of get a murder. we do get a running timeline because of the six months between the books and the time traveling you know there, there's a rough timeline established prior to this I a think... rough
0: timeline but one that depends on understanding maja and majwa to really get, I think they're different. I'm, I'm saying it now. Twenty silver denarii. All right.
1: I mean, they do say there is like an explicit six months if I, like moment. But I think the interesting thing here is to include the most recent six months in this. Kat's been working with her army, her her legion. Have Black and Captain been swooping in and with for some swordplay lessons while she, while they're on the march?
0: No. But they have had killing people lessons. Mm. Th- that's like a whole thing. Gotcha, D- did gotcha, you gotcha. even read book one?
1: Uh, No, actually. I you have just it.
0: roughly a day's worth of recorded material published on the internet accessible to everyone where you discuss the events of book one. Hmm. That doesn't sound like me. Well, skill issue. All right. Speaking of skill issues, however, they're bantering. They're one upping each other. And Billy acknowledges that she's not so bad. She's improved. She's got an aspect, he realizes, that serves as an equalizer. And then he says, That's the thing with names, squire. An equalizer can put you on even footing with me power-wise, but it doesn't account for skill. And his blade dug deep into my shoulder. Fool, Line, pretty metal. He stabs her. Great for him. Bad for everyone because he's just the worst and I hate him. But. In a world like this, what do you want to bet that just by giving that speech, he's more capable of giving that final emphasis to it by cutting into her shoulder because he gave the speech, which would be well punctuated by a little stabbing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a level you have to achieve, like a level of buying into your own story, of of giving into your own story, I guess, before you can give a speech like that and have it mean anything. And you have to time that speech correctly so that you're not in position for the reversal at the end of it. The you know, if the bubbling conjurer had given that speech, it would not have worked out so well for him. Not like really, the way the
0: chapter actually goes, right? The way
1: things actually go, great for him all the way through.
0: Though so I can just imagine that. Oh, you've done well so far, apprentice, but you haven't begun to see what my powers are capable of. Explodes comically.
1: Right. laugh track plays trips on a sandal lace tumbles down into the sewer classic
0: chariot falls on him somehow but uh,
1: a duty chariot right like a real one uh billy is impressed with cat you know even after cutting her into her shoulder he he compliments her and uh even says that she seems to be better at working her name into the fight than he is as though that it's like a, a big hey wow you're even better than i am i think it's important to note I don't think William's that good at it. (laughs) Like, that's not a very high bar. This is the guy who is the lone swordsman who has, let me check, been alone exactly one time and that's when he got pushed off a wall by the person who was dead. He's constantly fighting half of the core part of his name. That's probably why she's better at using her name than he is.
0: You say that, but I'm pretty sure that William's Oh, he's been named for a while, right? He's probably undertaken a course of study, an academic approach to how names work, right? Uh,
1: Not quite. Uh, As he continues his speech, William says, This? This is what I do. I've been learning the sword since I could walk. I'm not a general, you see. I'm not a politician or a scholar. I'm self-aware enough to know that I'm not even particularly clever. And first of all, he says, I'm not a politician or a scholar. Hey, Bill. We know. Okay, we've we've seen the way you just exist in the world. Uh, but this this little this line is great because it's the first time where he is both introspective and talking about something important, and he's just completely right the whole way through. He's not a general. He's not a politician. He's not a scholar. He's not particularly clever. Nice job, Will. You got you you got something right. You know, hundred percent on that one.
0: Honestly, I oh, I'm upset that it's Billy. I am on record as being here for the himbo. And he's not a himbo. He's a monster. Yeah. But traits like that. And that's why I agree with Carmelita, who comes onto the scene and just bolts him with lightning and continues to. This isn't a bolt of lightning, really. It's a stream of lightning. Well, she... she says, would you shut up already? Billy falls to the ground. And the redhead continues to pour power into the spell. That's how you should treat a man like this. It's also
1: important to note that this bolt of lightning strikes him directly in the face. He's, uh, he's not messing around here.
0: I wish there were a joke that could be made about stupid or evil with electrons and protons and positive, negative, but not gain one here.
1: Well, yeah, this isn't a science podcast.
0: No, it's a theology podcast.
1: It is. Uh... So, Katsune blasts William with lightning. Kat uh, is talking to her. There's some, some back and forth, and she says something about the sword. It's wrong. And the mage uh, reveals a little bit about herself here. You know, we know that she's part Fey, but she says, preaching to the choir here. Turns out she's half Fey, half angel. We got a lot going on in this
0: crew. So, Kat's just into biblically accurate gingers? Yeah. <laughs> you got it. So,. Catherine knows better. Hockram's getting an idea. Apprentice knows better than Catherine at this point in terms of name lore and story stuff. But Kat needs to talk to her upper management, if you will, because she questions, if Hockram's here, where's the thief? And the mage replies, she disappeared after he punched her in the face. I guess she's not the fighting type. Obviously, thief appears immediately from right behind her. Duh, of course. We know how this works. However... Thief apparently disappeared after Hockram punched her in the face. What's the event? Sorry, let me step back. What's the body part on Hakram that hurt her? Uh, presumably a fist. And what was amputated before they were able to become good friends later on?
1: Also a fist.
0: I'm just saying, Viv holds a grudge. <laughs> Against his hands? Specifically that hand, which we know is different than... Well, we know that that hand does better than the other. Uh, no spoilers, but Hunter will not be alone by the end of the fight.
1: Yeah, Hockram has some hand issues starting here and going for most of the story.
0: But you think Hawkram's going to have problems? Hunter's beside himself. Yikes. The...
1: Holy Bisac- moly. I... I no. Naturally, like you said, Thief reappears, attempting to stab this half-fey, half-angel in the back. And fortunately... She is saved by Z's, who is engaged in a duel, I'll remind you, and he's a little busy at the moment, and he still manages to catch a stealth-based name in the act of being stealthy and blasts her out of there to save uh, a couple of people from uh, probably pretty dangerous wounds. He is incredible. He's got this awareness while he's engaged in a duel with another named, le- No, no less. He's Phenomenal.
0: He is. And with him watching over the party, nothing bad could possibly happen.
1: Except, you know, whoops. Uh, While this is all going on, Hockram has been fighting the Lone Swordsman. And they. uh, Cat looks up just in time to see this special sword of his tear its way through Hockram's chest and take a hand with it.
0: Mm. Whoops. I don't want to speak too strongly here, but I feel that it's unenviable.
1: Yeah, it's not great. But the cavalry arrives, almost literally, or chariotry? We give me fi- a second, give me a second. Oh, okay.
0: So this would be something along the lines of a deus ex curus. Okay. So
1: <laughs> thank you for pausing to get us back. <laughs> the warlock rolls in literally on a chariot. Great. In a chariot that is flying, being pulled by two pitch-black winged horses. The warlock is so cool in so many ways, and he knows how to make an entrance. Also, as part of this entrance, this flying chariot runs over William and tramples him. So, you know, A-plus all the way around.
0: Warlock gets it. He knows what to do. And more than that, he doesn't just do the right thing, but he does the right thing right. Because he shows up, he puts the reins down casually, pulls at his gloves, and says, Well, this is a mess. It used to be such a nice city, and now there's blood everywhere. Think of the resale value, children. He is elegant. When the conjurer shoots some flame at him, he just has a put-on sigh. Wiggles his hand and redirects his spell to catch Thief in the chest. <laughs> I, I love him.
1: Yeah, he's phenomenal. Viv is having a bad day. She goes goes for a stab, gets bodily thrown into the air by the apprentice. Just as she's getting her bearings and crawling out of the wreckage of this house, a blast of fiery bur... F- a flock of fiery crows crashes into her chest, throwing her out of sight. It, it's not going well for her.
0: Okay, so Hunter is indisposed Mm -hmm. bill is i was going to say underfoot under wheel yep thief is aflame at least three of them are having a rough time i don't suppose anyone else is having a bad time in a way that we remember in quote all the time even before embarking on the podcast
1: yeah we get uh one of the most memorable scenes in the entire work for for both of us and for many people i assume uh conjurer is already casting he's here to he's he's setting up to take on the warlock and uh, uh the warlock lazily points a finger in his direction and just says boom and oh and a perfectly symmetrical charred hole appears in the middle of the hero's forehead and then his skull implodes on top of it <laughs> it's so good we we know how powerful the calamities are or we hear how powerful they are we see them barring and how it's you know, shaking the countryside we see some flashbacks yada 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 and here we have this hero who's been causing a bit of problems and he's in a band of five and he's pretty dangerous and he's been holding his own against the apprentice and warlock swoops in and says one word and drills a hole in his head and then implodes his skull It's incredible. It's such a powerful scene. It's so good all the way through. Just top tier stuff all the way around.
0: And immediately after a perfect kill, which he knows he's pulled off. Oh, yeah. uh, Performatively. He keeps going. He does. Conjurer's head explodes
1: and he drops. And then Warlock calmly says, now, who's the Rapscallion responsible for all this arson?
0: Rapscallion
1: also all this arson uh, you just exploded the guy who's been throwing fire around also you threw fire around he he is so very in a scene right now and he knows it and is loving every second of it
0: and the Rapscallion in question immediately and I think Warlock knows enough to be aware that this would be the next step but Absolutely. this is a reveal yourself moment more powerful than saying reveal yourself because if he said that William would clearly be in one of the buildings nearby, and his voice would come from everywhere, and he would say, blah, 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 your villainy list thing. But instead, the chariot flips over. Oh, look, it's a surprise. And the Calamity almost loses his footing before, if I may quote, landing on his feet and brushing away a few flecks of ash. This giant man, giant old man by most adventurous standards, the average adventurer retires by the age of 32, just... Has his chariot flipped, he lands on his feet, brushes away some ash. He knew this was coming. He's in full control of the scene, and will be unless there's some intercession.
1: Yep. Uh, The Lone Swordsman has a trap up his sleeve, and calls for it to be sprung, and nothing happens. Cat's confused, asked if it's a bluff, but it's not a bluff. It's Robert. Our favorite goblin has destroyed an ambush made up of uh, the Thieves' Guild, and is here to bask in the glory of his
0: success. And the love he shares with Catherine is on full display. He says, I'm happy to report we stabbed everything until it stopped moving, just like you taught us. And Catherine, in her expression of love, disavows him, saying automatically, she notes, I didn't teach you that. Don't implicate me in your future crimes. Which is beautiful and speaking of beautiful things i did pull up a declension chart because i've never studied latin so i was probably going to be wrong with my initial guess i'd like to amend my previous statement to deus ex Curu.
1: oh thank you for that
0: because it's fourth declension singular ablative after an ex curu, or i guess kuru since the r's are from an english american english perspective funky
1: can we just Take a moment here. Don't implicate me in your future crimes. Is it illegal to kill a bunch of Thieves Guild folks who are about to shoot the lawfully appointed ruler of a city? It's not what Warlock is, but let's be honest here. He is, in actuality.
0: No, the illegal name. thing here would be what they're going to do with the stabbing things until they stop moving that Catherine taught them in the future.
1: Ah, the future she, Otherwise crimes. you'd
0: say... I didn't teach you that. Don't implicate me in this crime.
1: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. William is disappointed, and Kat runs through why, and her reasons are pretty good. We have, first, Hunter was a gory mess on the ground, and Kat suspects he's not dead, but then says he was done for the night. Man's got two torsos. I think it's longer than just the night that he'll be out of the fight. I think she's overestimating his durability. He was sliced in half.
0: And as we see in future chapters, he does, in fact, hold up under that kind of strain remarkably well, which is to say... At all? Yeah. (laughs) But um, that's not the only loss Billy has faced,
1: is it? Nope. Then Kat gives us this line. Conjurer had just been served the Calamity Special. Hey, Kat, don't... What is that? What are you doing? <laughs> Calamity special? <laughs> oh my goodness. I really hope that after this, Kat's out of that line, and that she just sprinkles it into a conversation when she's talking to Black. I would love to know his reaction to having something that Warlock does be called the Calamity special. <laughs> it's so good.
0: Oh, the disapproval and, and joy would be top-notch. I, say.
1: I, think, uh, I think Black would refer to everything Warlock does as the Calamity Special going forward, and he'd be right to.
0: That could be trouble. The other <laughs> thing that could be trouble is Catherine's taking stock. Billy's not doing well. Hunter is bisected. Contra, yeah. Thieves taking a second hit in the face. And the bard was, my eyes turned to the rooftop where she'd been, finding it empty. Oh, says Catherine, that could be trouble. And full spoilers, yes.
1: <laughs> yep. I mean, <laughs> uh, that that's one you want to keep track of.
0: But, well, Catherine realizes that, oh, the bard's missing. This is what we need to be concerned with. Billy's just done with his party. He's a lone swordsman now, for once, briefly. And he's ready to live that role. He says, doesn't matter. Maybe it was always supposed to be this way. Just me and the monster. And... I mean, main character brain rot is strong in this one. He's... I, I realize he is the Lone Swordsman, and generally it is good for the name, probably, to be convinced you're the protagonist. But you haven't built a story where you're the protagonist. You're undercutting yourself all the way. This isn't going well, especially against the Warlock.
1: Yeah, I, the problem is, William's got the Bard talking to him. William's got the william talking to him william's got the sword he feels like his destiny i guess is to kill a calamity like that's his whole thing here he's going to be very dramatic about it because that's who he is but he legitimately probably thinks hey he's here now i get to kill the warlock not now i get to fight the warlock but i this is this is where i kill him because william's just like that
0: And instead, Warlock snaps his fingers, and Billy's dragged to the air by his feet, and trapped.
1: Yes, because this is still, uh, let me double check here, yep, still the Warlock. Uh, The Lone Swordsman isn't really a threat here.
0: And what I love is, Catherine is beginning to understand name stuff. The Apprentice still outpaces her, because of his upbringing. But Warlock has been Black's bestie for decades and decades. He catches the Lone Swordsman, has him completely helpless and vulnerable, has taken his sword from him with magic, and then the guy who can blow up somebody by pointing at them tells Catherine, you'll have to kill him yourself, of course, but there's no reason we can't put him on ice until we can arrange that in a more controlled setting. He understands what's been built up here, and he's like, yeah, I'll give you all the resources you need, you gotta handle it, but ah, he's a good guy, and Catherine needs to well, he's a decent fellow, and Catherine needs to respect him. You mentioned that he's Black's bestie of a long time,
1: and that he understands what's going on here, but Warlock makes a weird comment, and this is something that we noticed before, and I think will probably come up again. Black fully is within the stories, he's or manipulating the stories, he understands them, that's like his whole thing. And I think to an extent, Captain is there too, because she's following Black, but The other Calamities, especially Warlock, who we get a lot of screen time, not enough, but a lot, um, seems like he often over-inflates. He's a very confident person, as he should be, but I think he misses how that confidence interacts with stories a lot of times, or sometimes. I mean, it only happens a few times, but it does happen, where he is so sure that because he's the Warlock, because he's so good at what he does, that the other side is not truly a threat to him that I even if he takes the fight seriously takes the engagement seriously his comments I think undermine his position and this is a prime example of that the bard shows up and says no that's not going to happen to the putting him William on ice comment and warlock goes on this oh bards are so annoying and then pauses and says on the other hand I've been meaning to dissect one of those I thank you for the sacrifice you volunteered to undertake on behalf of the empire. It's there's there's banter. Oh, I'm going. I'm going to win for sure. And then there's assuming your victory in a way that coming from him doesn't feel like banter, but
0: rather just yeah, of course I've won this fight already. He kind of card he's already played in the battle. It's a great effect because oh, right. you you do get a freebie. It, and
1: honest, in a surprise attack against pretty inexperienced people and the kind of person who's a direct matchup, but your story doesn't interact yet. Yeah, sure. You can just kill someone, but a bard, especially, I don't know. This feels like a mistake and it is, uh, and it's like the kind of thing that black wouldn't do that cats uh, might do, but intentionally for warlock. It feels like he's just speaking his mind and not really paying attention to what it means for the story of this fight. You, you, He spent so much time with Black, how does he not know better than this?
0: Because he's not Black. And that's already a fundamental difference in scale of story awareness. Warlock understands the story. Warlock has all the information he needs. And in fact, Warlock would be able to work this out if that's what he were doing. But at this point, he has held the stage for a few minutes. And he's still the center of attention. He's in full-on performance mode. This is a charismatic guy who is used to an audience and, frankly, enjoys it. He's getting a little carried away because, come on, that's a great line. Look, I'm the warlock. I'm going to get the Bard and Dissector. Aha! they're going to love it. The gums are going to tell that to everyone. It's going to get back to Black, and Black's going to say, oh, wow, okay, so you're so amazing. I realized that you were always my favorite Calamity, but, you know, oops. It'd be,
1: a, it'd be a more forgivable, in fact, a more beneficial line if, say, at least one other Calamity was nearby, waiting in the wings to step in and actually lock down this fight. You know, if he said that, and the bard says something about, oh, no, you'll never catch me, and then Ranger steps out of the shadows. You know, like, that that's one thing. <laughs> but uh, that's not how it,
0: it shook out. No, no, no. The bard knows how to handle things. She shows up. She does a little narration. So she tells everyone what's going to happen because she has to tip her hand because she's like that. And then she lays things out buying yet more time. I get it. Things aren't ideal, what with Conjurer having gone all esplody. And I'm sorry, but I like her. Even though she's a bard, gone all esplody is very good. <laughs> it is. She acknowledges Hunter's doing his best imitation of a pile of fresh pork chops. And then, but come on, any team with a woman as outrageously beautiful as me on it, it's basically mandated by the heavens to win. And I'm sorry, but that's, I I love her, okay? She better win this fight. Or win this escape. Like, being conceited is the most attractive thing a human being can do. Yeah. They have very healthy relationships. Uh-huh. Don't worry about
1: it. You do, definitely. Uh, and Kat follows us up with, instead of something clever or, like, something about how the fight's actually going into, going to go, she decides to just weirdly insult the bard's nose. Says that it's outrageously sized, presumably large. Th- that's a weird tack to take for Kat. It's, it's. I mean, it's very rude, but not in a ah, we're fighting and trying to kill each other way. Just like an unnecessary <laughs> appearance insult out of nowhere, and the bard doesn't like it.
0: It hurts her feelings a little. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if she doesn't like the nose, maybe you know, she does get a new nose by the end of the story. That's true. But she's got a great set of I'm just distracting you moves that everyone falls for because she is just so audacious. She says she's taken whatever excess power there was when the tower ward went down, shoved it in a bottle, and created a sharper multiplied by about a thousand. And she pulls out a bottle, and Catherine says, that's a half-empty bottle of rum. Unabashed, she says, that's embarrassing without looking embarrassed, and pulls out another bottle, this one emitting an ominous blue glow. And we have a great juxtaposition between Catherine's naivety and warlock's competence she's got this ominous blue bottle and Catherine says she hadn't been lying warlock cocked his head to the side are you trying to bluff me with a bottle full of common callowin sprites he asked incredulously that's magnificent
1: it's excellent and she's been called out so the bard curses and says all right so that could have gone better I'll admit, the plan still has some kinks to work out, but that's okay. I was just a distraction. It's phenomenal. She does these very dumb things, and it's so goofy. It's so bard-like, and it works so well. And then it, you know, it's its pretty funny. It, it's a, the double bluff that ends up being actually nothing. And then Warlock gets shot, so uh, the plan worked <laughs> Way better than it had any right working.
0: Shooting the Warlock works way worse than it has any right working. Yeah, by the end of this, there's smokers and everyone's gone and whatever. But the arrow takes Warlock in the shoulder. A mage, which are, you know, not the same physical paramounts that martial named are going to be, even though Warlock is tall, dark, and handsome. Mm-hmm. he's still he, he, you know he's still not i don't know the mirror knight <laughs> no but he's not when the arrow takes in the shoulder the calamity barely blinked before turning in the direction it had come from before i could even see what was there half the rooftop was on fire whoops he's he's got an arrow in him but whatever he'll deal with it that's how you react to your shot in a video game i love him
1: he, he's very good i mean just the instant response the lack of any Actual consequences to being shot. Next chapter, he—you know—we get a a bit where he's talking to Black briefly, and this is—if not today, it's the next day. It's very soon after, and he doesn't even bring up the fact that he's been shot. Not even a a playful like, "Ah, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I was shot yesterday." It does like it doesn't even register at that level for him. It it just does not matter.
0: I'm sure it's healed by the end of that paragraph. He's got the magic to spare. Oh, fair. So I went on the wiki. Because I was curious. And I know the wiki is not wholly complete, inerrant, what have you. But it seems that there is no definite confirmation of which hand Hockram loses in this fight anywhere in the series. Oh, how about that? I haven't checked this myself. However, I don't need to because there is definite confirmation in this chapter. Oh? Catherine goes to tend to him. She says... It was the to see an orchid's size eyes looking so frail, which is not a word you want to use to describe Hakram because you're wrong. And then Catherine says, you'll be all right, Hakram. So his left hand's uh, coming
1: I, you know, it would have been polite as your, as, you know, my co-host to have warned me that we were ending the podcast before we got into the last episode. But I, you know, I guess there's nothing I can do about it now.
0: I mean, we're almost on a year now, so the ending's coming up fast.
1: No, it was right there. You, you, you killed it. Hockram, though, also has some nice goofs about his missing hand, because while he's in no danger of dying, according to Cad, his response is, I suppose my clapping days are over. And it's such a goofy, like, out-of-left-field line. It, he just doesn't seem to be particularly worried about having lost a hand, I guess. <laughs> or he's in shock.
0: I think more likely he doesn't even care because he's Hakram. He's just that metal. No, he metal comes later. First, it's bone. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm I get it all mixed up. Speaking of the upcoming things, mm-hmm. I have two reasons I love Warlock so very much. First of all, we know this is a deeply racist in the sense of speciesist world. Yep. The prays hate the orcs because they're not where they should be. The Kalimans hate the orcs because they're evil. And Warlock, who is by be by role, one of the highest members in the oppressor class, who therefore benefits from all the oppressions, sees Hakram's situation and says, We won't be able to reattach the hand, child. That is honest and earnest affection for an orc as big as he is, but in some ways even bigger, because he's Hakram. And that's just, that's really sweet. That he can be paternal to a giant doom monster. Yeah. But the other reason I love him is that said, Warlock spoke with an interested glint in his eye, absently ripping the arrow out of his shoulder. Some interesting discoveries have been made in the area of magical prestigious these last few years. He tears an arrow out of himself without even noticing and is just ready to offer up mad necromancy to. Okay, so. Catherine's like his future niece, right? So Matt makes Adjutant his niece's secretary?
1: Yep. That's awesome. He's just a good all-around dude. And everyone should like him. And everyone does. Except probably the um, the four heroes from this fight.
0: Three and two halves.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: And we end with Hakram grinning and saying I'm listening which none of you are allowed to do any longer because (laughs)
1: because that is the end of this episode
0: join us next week on Podcast Guys talking to Radicoretta as we discuss manual necromancy blind imitation
1: and unwashed masses
0: weighed in their blood Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at evil.wordpress.com Intro music for this episode with Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph with Big Band Show by Music4Videos. Sounds for The Spear were an amalgamation of Sword Thud, Sword Hit, and Howling 4, all by Pixabay. Outro music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimants never the named; our patron and guardian, the fey knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 11, Report.